Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? I think it was Reebok. So I'm a child of the 80s and like Reebok high tops was in my vocabulary at a very young age. I fell in love with those sneakers. I had them in different colors. I always I was like looking forward to my feet growing so I could get a new a new pair. That was a brand that that and I think in Converse in those early days, I was very aware of, of footwear for some reason. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Tamara Mendelson, the chief marketing officer for Eventbrite the 17-year-old global self-service ticketing platform for live experiences that allows anyone to create, share, find, and attend events. The app enables music festivals, marathons, conferences, community rallies, fundraisers, gaming competitions, and yes, even air guitar contests. Eventbrite's purpose is simple, to bring the world together through live experiences. And the company is delivering that purpose. Five million events last year, nearly 300 million tickets, and about 800,000 creators use the platform. Yearly revenue is approaching 300 million. Eventbrite went public in 2018, 12 years after its founding. My guest Tamara joined Eventbrite way back in 2009 when the company was only three years old. She was appointed chief marketing officer about three and a half years ago. Before Eventbrite, Tamara spent four years as a senior analyst at Forrester, where she specialized in e-commerce and multi-channel retail. Tamara studied comparative literature and economics at Wellesley College and earned her MBA from the Sloan School of Management at MIT. This is my conversation with a woman who just loves connecting and community. Here's Tamara. Tamara, welcome to the CMO Podcast. We are recording this episode right around Halloween. Now, is this a really active time on your platform? Yes, it's actually one of our biggest times of year. The, just the number of Halloween activities and events across basically every category of event you can imagine uh, is spiking right now as people are really getting excited for, for this holiday season. So what about at Eventbrite itself? Is Halloween a big holiday for your company? Do you dress up? Do you have a big party? We do dress up. We have a costume contest and also a barkling costume contest as well. So for those employees that own dogs, we do a dog costume contest. Well, you know, we, we're all struggling with a hybrid work environment, right? And you do things like that. People want to be at work. We do this all virtually. We are a oh, wow. first organization. Yes. Oh. And so have employees all over the world. And so find ways to virtually engage in these celebratory moments. Holy cow. So you don't come to the office at all? We don't currently. There are some locations that have hubs where you can go into the office if you choose, but we have decided and chosen to try to find the best talent around the world, regardless of, of where you might live. 
What's the best part of that for you and what's the worst part of it? The best part is just access to talent and um, amazing individuals who maybe choose not to live in a major metro and in countries where maybe we don't have we don't have an office. And so being able to have a team filled with such amazing diversity of perspective and worldview has been really fulfilling for everybody and I think it makes us a better company. Mm-hmm. Is there any downside? Is there any worst part of it? Not really. I think making, you know, you have to be much more intentional about gathering. Gathering is incredibly important to us. Yeah. After all, we are an events right. focused organization. And so getting really intentional about how and why we gather has been a muscle that we've been building over the last few years. And we really do look forward and cherish those times together because there's just, you know, relationships, trust and fun that you can have in real life that just isn't possible virtually. So carving out the time and the purpose to have those meaningful gatherings is is really important to us, but takes a lot more planning and more forethought. Yeah, but that's that's a good thing, right? I think so. Yes. Now, I want to open up this conversation with a few more trivia questions. I asked about Halloween, about your very interesting category and company. And the first one is, what is the most active time on the platform? Is it Halloween? Is it Christmas? Is it New Year's? Well, I would say the single biggest holiday is New Year's. Yeah, okay. However... In terms of time of year right now is our our busiest time of year because there are so many categories that converge in the fall. There's food and drink events. So fall food festivals are really big. Beer festivals, it's harvest season for wine. There's Oktoberfest in Germany. So food and drink is a big category right now. A lot of music starts coming back to life in our major metros as you know students come back to, to university in the fall. People get back from summer vacations. And so the music and nightlife scenes really start going wild in the fall. And then there's conference season on the business side, networking events, conferences. It's a very busy time of year for that, as I'm sure you know. Speaking at various conferences and, and attending work-related events is, is very busy in the fall. And then, of course, the season of Halloween. So Halloween parties on Halloween night, but then also all leading up to Halloween. There are pumpkin patches and corn mazes and haunted houses. There's so much activity for all of our audience, whether young or old, whether you live in a city or outside of the city. There, this time of year is just really big for events. You just reminded me why fall is my favorite season. Exactly. I have to finish this show and get out into a pumpkin patch. That's what I'm <laughs> going to do. So next question is, what's the largest event ever organized on Eventbrite? There was a salsa festival in Mexico, and oh, it was my. a free event. And people from around the world gathered to celebrate this art and this art form. And there's all sorts of events around this one one big festival. And it took place over a couple of days. And and the the interesting thing is a lot of times we don't see these happening until they're like literally taking place on the platform. We have a sales team that goes out and targets very high quality, high value events for our platform. But then there are these magical moments where things that we didn't go out and actually go and sell to find our platform and use it self-service and end up being these huge cultural moments for us. What's the largest category of events organized on your platform? Is it food and wine? Is it it's music, actually. Oh, it's music. Okay. That makes sense. And music is a very broad category, as, as you can imagine. Yeah. There's all different genres. There's different types of music events. And more and more, we're seeing actually hybrid types of events that have a music component and a food and drink component or a music component and a comedy component. 
and that's been really fun to see how these categories have evolved over time as well. What's the most interesting event you have ever attended organized on your app? Oh, interesting. I think one of our very early large events was a big festival that took place in Central Park in New York City. And it was a music festival with a, a charity component to it. And we planned for months because it was you know, the biggest event that we had had up until that point. We built new technology to handle entry, to get tens of thousands of people through the gates in Central Park and into the festival. And it all went super smoothly. And then it started to lightning and thunderstorm. And we were faced with the challenge of getting everybody out very quickly. Oh my. And so it's these kinds of moments that really put ourselves in the shoes of our customers, of the event organizers that make us realize there's so much that happens and goes into both the planning and then the actual day of event. And to support our customers through the inevitable ups and downs and unplanned circumstances is really what inspires us, what motivates us. And the happy ending to that story is it was rescheduled and also went off without a hitch a few weeks later. And it was just this really wonderful, triumphant moment for the team and for the event organizer themselves to to pull off such an amazing experience where you have thousands of people gathered together, celebrating a cause that they're passionate about, listening to music that they love, and feeling connected in a really fulfilling way. We have lots of potential creators and potential creators listening. So other than using your platform, what's the single most important factor in planning a fabulous, successful event? I think understanding your why, and this you know, very much comes back to brand in general, but the creators that find the most success that we see on Eventbrite really understand why they do what they do. And it usually is connected to something that they are personally very passionate about. And they want to share that passion with others, whether it's cooking or an art form or technology. It really, the beauty of the Eventbrite platform is that you can see the breadth and diversity and spectrum of people's interests and passions. And Eventbrite allows you to find other people that want to share that and explore that or are curious about that and gives creators the opportunity to really not only share their passion, but build a livelihood and a business out of it. That's a pretty darn good brand purpose. Yes. It's one that we're very passionate about. That is, is inspiring and I think many people can relate to at a human level. Yeah. How much do you talk about that within the company? I mean, you're a very you're a big company now. You do five million events a year or something like that. It's but you, your your purpose is very powerful. It's very human. Uh, it's at the center of being a human, really. So how much do you dialogue about that, talk about that, think about it, ponder on it, think about innovating, you know, with that purpose? Tell us a bit about that. Talk about that purpose a lot, actually. And when we ask people why they choose to join the company, why they choose to, to dedicate their time and their passion and their skills to helping us build our marketplace, our platform, it's because of that purpose. That purpose is so, as you said, universal and human, and it's a great motivator. So it is something we talk about a lot because it, it reminds us, you know, when you get stressed over our, you know, some particular aspect of a project you're working on to remember the bigger purpose that why we that reason for why we exist, which is really yeah. to empower people to share their passions, to build businesses, if you're a creator, or to go out and connect with the community and explore your passions or, or find new ones as a consumer is, is a really motivating 
reason for existence and is a North star for us that has never led us astray. If we, if we come back to that core purpose, when we're doing product roadmap prioritization or trying to figure out the angle of a new marketing campaign, if we come back to that North star, that never misguides us. Okay. Now let's jump into your career at Eventbrite because it's an unusual story, right? Most of your career has been with this one company, 14 years, and you joined when the company was only three years old. So let's go back to that time 14 years ago. Tell us how you discovered Eventbrite in 2009, coming out, I think, of your MBA at, at Sloan. And why did you choose this company versus all of the options you had available to you? You had a fabulous you know, record and career and time at Sloan. We'll talk about that later. But why this company at three years old, 14 years ago? Well, I started my career in technology consulting at Forrester Research, and I have always been fascinated. I graduated college during the first dot-com bust, and I've just been fascinated by how technology can transform not only business and how businesses operate, but also how we live our lives. And went to business school to explore all the different avenues of that concept. And did my summer internship in the Bay Area. I lived on the East Coast my whole life up until that point. And when I came out here to San Francisco, I met all of these entrepreneurs that had were just full of inspiration and ideas and were just building companies. And that was a that was really eye-opening for me that you could just have an idea and build a company. And I knew that, you know, that's what I wanted to do uh, when I graduated. I wanted to join a startup and help build something from scratch. This that notion of that just seemed very intriguing and very exciting to me. Then, of course, you know, I have a knack for graduating educational institutions during downturns. So <laughs> I, I graduated in the spring of 2009, yeah. and most startups were not hiring in, during that time. They were doing everything they could to survive. And I had a job offer to go to a very large company, but I, I, it just wasn't where my heart was or where my passion was. And so I did a very last-minute search. I think I had a few days left before that offer expired. I did a search on LinkedIn. For any companies in the Bay Area that had less than 50 employees in tech, any roles in marketing or in product development, and there were two job postings. That's sort of how dire the situation was at the time. And so I just, I applied to both. And I got a call back from Julia Hartz, I think within 24 hours of, of submitting my revenues, one of the founders. One of the founders. She said, hey, I saw your mm -hmm. resume come in. You know, we're, this job posting is for somebody right out of undergrad. And at that point I had had you know, six, seven years of experience out of undergrad. And I said, I don't, I don't care. I will do, uh, you know, I'll be your janitor. I just want to join your company. And we ended up speaking for over an hour, just about the opportunity that she saw for them, right? The ways, you know, I pitched her on the ways in which I felt I could come in and add value and help the business grow. And it was very small at the time. It was before they had raised any VC funding. There were about 10 people at the company and it was exactly what I was looking for. And, you know, it, for me, it was very much love at first sight. I knew I wanted to join this team and help them build. I flew out to California a couple of days later, met the whole team and, I was sold and, and just overjoyed when a few days later, they, they gave me an offer to join their team. And that was, that's how I ended up at Eventbrite. Yeah, 14, a little over 14 years ago. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. 
And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. That's a great story. Now, what did the marketing organization look like back then? It was 10 people, right? So was it you? You're just looking at it. Yeah, that was the marketing org. That was really exciting. I think part of Julian's pitch was come help us build this company and this brand with no marketing budget. <laughs> and so that that was a challenge that that I was up for. And you know, the brand at that time was really just a manifestation of Julia and Kevin's personality. And it was it was really this this beautiful organic moment uh, at, at the founding of a company where, you know, my my strategy in developing the brand was actually to go out to our customers. We had a small base of very loyal customers who had found our platform and were using it to host a variety of different events. We had, you know, gotten some early traction in technology, in like tech um, conferences and networking events, just being out in Silicon Valley. And mm-hmm. so I went to our customers. And I just did, I surveyed them, and I asked them two or three simple questions. First, how do you feel about Eventbrite? And it was a multiple choice question. There were three answers. You could select, I love Eventbrite and I would recommend it to a friend. You know, Eventbrite meets my needs, but, you know, I would likely be interested in looking at alternatives or, you know, Eventbrite is not meeting my needs. And then I took the the response, looked at everyone that said, I love Eventbrite. And I asked them, why do you love Eventbrite? And how would you describe the brand? And the answers to those questions were the early nucleus of what is the Eventbrite brand today. People chose Eventbrite and loved Eventbrite because it saved them time. It made their lives easier. It helped them market their events more effectively, and it made them look professional to their attendees. These are still some of the main reasons that our customers choose us today. And when we asked them to to describe our brand, they said it was welcoming and accessible, fun and inspiring. Cool. And then I went to our team again, which was really small at the time. So you could, we, we just sat, to, sat down around a conference table. And I said, how would you describe our brand? What is the brand that we want to be? And we put those words on a whiteboard. And then I showed them the words that our customer said, and there was amazing overlap. And I'm sure this doesn't come as a surprise to you because I think you said that a brand is really just the manifestation of of the the employees of a company, but that's really what had happened. Without purposefully attempting, we had infused our company culture into our brand and our customers were actually experiencing that. And so that really became the, the cornerstone for how we built the brand, which is let's look to the customers that love us and see how they reflect back to us who we are. And then let's amplify that and magnify that and build upon that and find new ways to grow that. And that was really the, the early brand strategy. I just want to pause on that for a minute. It was a beautiful story of how to build a brand, even an established brand. And this was a new one, right? But go to your customers, the ones who love you and maybe the ones who have left you and ask why and compare that data to what your aspiration is as a team and see if there's any things that are in conflict. And and my guess is at your company, there were not. And that is an authentic way to frame your brand and then align everyone behind that and then activate it like crazy. Was there anything when you looked at employees versus customers that was not in harmony? I don't think so. I think that we had aspirations at the time to be disruptive. And so that was one of the words that came out of our exercise, internal exercise, whereas customers didn't necessarily see us as quote unquote disruptive, but more enabling. We allowed them to do something that they couldn't do previously to having found us. 
But we knew that we were trying to disrupt a an old and fairly stagnant industry in mm-hmm. many ways. And in doing so, we knew that we also had to have a fair amount of humility. So that was another word that came up that our customers didn't necessarily, I, I don't think it really came up in the customer survey, but we said, we want to be humble about doing this. We don't want to, we have to remind ourselves, we don't know everything. Yeah. We are experts in technology, but not necessarily experts in events. And so those were two words that in the early days were different between what the, our, our customers perceived us as, but we wanted to remind ourselves were important values. Now you were at this company 14 years, about seven roles, I think, from the first one, three and a half years as the CMO. You could have left any time, I'm sure. What is it about the culture, the company? I mean, I, we can feel your passion for the role, but if you could boil it down to one or two things on why you have stayed and spent the majority of your professional career at, at this firm, what is it about the culture that's such a fit for you? I think first and foremost, it's a mission that matters to me. I think that when we put together our very first pitch deck to go out and raise funding, you know, Kevin and Julia asked me to to lead that pitch deck development process. And Kevin is the husband of Julia, and they're the two of the three founders just for our audience. Exactly. Kevin and Julia asked me to sort of take the lead on putting this pitch deck together, and we started with our mission our vision for what we wanted to build, our why, right? To br- and and at, at the time we said, it's, it's pretty simple. We want to bring people together. We want to bring people together through live experiences all around the world. And that is in our original pitch deck from 2009. And that is still our mission today. And that is a mission that I care deeply about. And in 2009 could have never predicted the global pandemic and the circumstances with which we were made, I think, so powerfully aware of how important gathering in person actually is. Mm -hmm. And in that original pitch deck, we said, yep, you know, we're we're sure you see so many pitches about new technologies that are pulling people onto their screens and out of real life. But guess what? Real life gathering is here to stay. It's never going to go away. It's always going to be something that people care about. And there's always going to be growth in this industry. You know, that was very prescient in many ways. And looking back on that now, I mean, this is still the reason, one of the main reasons I'm at Eventbrite is that I believe so deeply in the purpose and our our reason for existence and our, our mission of trying to empower local entrepreneurs to follow their passions and build businesses off of them and give people the opportunity to come together and experience life together in real life. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I'm, I'm still here. I think second is, as you mentioned, I've had a number of different roles and the company has transformed and grown so much since those early days, you know, to give you a sense of the growth, our, our CFO used to stop and play pool when we hit $10,000 in revenue. And we, that would usually be around six o'clock at night. And these days we are, you know, it's not uncommon to do over a million dollars in revenue in a day. And so the scale the size of business over this duration of time has transformed. So I've had the opportunity to really learn and grow at an incredibly rapid rate, as well as take on new responsibilities and opportunities for growth that I think, you know, have made me a better marketer, right? I ran product for a number of years and, you know, having the opportunity to get exposure to these different parts of the business to grow and scale the business, the team, I think has afforded me tremendous opportunity for career growth um, that I think usually you'd probably have to jump around and, and go to a number of different companies to get that that breadth of, of opportunity. So I, that, that for me is the second reason. And then the third you hit on is the culture. 
the people. I love the people that I work with and I get to come to work every day and learn from them. The people that work at Eventbrite are united by our mission. They all believe deeply in it. And so there's really not a lot of politics, no hidden agendas. Like we just want to do the best thing for our customers. And that makes working so fluid and so fun and so fulfilling and, you know, a, a place that I've, I've wanted to dedicate the vast majority of my career now to. Now, when you hit a million dollars in a day, what does your CFO do at the end of that day? <laughs> He's like, where's the next million? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Those are beautiful thoughts about the company. And, and I think a lot of counsel in there for others in terms of thinking about your career, maybe when to stay, when to leave. You were employee, marketing employee, basically number one. And now you have a pretty big company, a thriving marketing organization. What have you learned over those 14 years in building out and scaling an excellent team, an excellent marketing organization, uh, great people who are leading a fast-growing company? If there's two or three pieces of advice for someone who is trying to build or rebuild a world-class marketing organization, what would those pieces of advice be? The thing that has really held true through all of these phases of growth is the importance of a clear and aligned vision and strategy. If people understand and agree on where you're trying to go, that's the first piece. And then how you're going to get there. Mm -hmm. If people deeply understand that strategy, then you can give them autonomy. You can empower them. You can hire the best people at what in, in their given field and just say run because we all know where we're going and, and how we want to get there. And it's in those moments where the strategy was ambiguous or where it was unclear what the priority was. That was when we were less efficient, where there was more confusion, where people felt less fulfilled because they were working on things and, and they didn't know, you know how it connected or laddered up to a greater, a greater purpose or how they were contributing to the greater whole. Whereas in contrast in those moments, and I think we've gotten better and better at this over time, where we take the time, and I have to emphasize it takes a lot of time to not only articulate the vision and the strategy, but then explain it, take time to for people to digest it, give them various avenues and mechanisms to have exposure to it and to push on it and to question it and to really ultimately own it that's when we've been sort of at our highest functioning. So I think that it's easy, especially in um, leadership roles to say, okay, I, I understand where we're going and have the strategy and then just kind of give directives to the team. But if they don't really internalize that direction, that, that reason for why they're doing what they're doing, they're not going to be able to make the best decisions. They don't have all the context to do their best work. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, hiring really excellent people, giving them very clear expectations and making sure we're aligned on where we're going and then just getting out of the way and making sure they have you know all the wind in their sails as possible. When you say vision, you mean kind of where you want to go as a business and the purpose is your why and the strategy or the choices you're making to deliver the purpose and achieve the vision. Do I have that about right? That's exactly right. Thing that we have honed in our strategy is that that choice because strategy isn't just what you are going to do; it is what you are not going to do. And getting very yeah. clear about that has given the team, I think, the necessary clarity to be able to do their best work. You say it takes a lot of time. I agree with that. What have you found to be effective in uh, sharing it and engaging people so they feel like it's their own and it's not a directive, as you said? So how do you, how do you do that? What have you found to be most effective? 
repetition is incredibly important. And then multiple mediums. So for our new three-year strategy, which we just rolled out to the company, there there were sort of two phases. One was development on that strategy. And in the development of the strategy, we tapped about 50 senior leaders from across the organization to help us develop that strategy so that they could bring their expertise, but also the the connection to their teams and the insights that their teams are having up into the strategy. And it wasn't just like the the C-suite developing it in an ivory tower or anything like that, uh-huh. but it was rather highly cross-functional and involved leaders from, from all levels within the organization. So the first piece was in the development of that strategy, giving people opportunity to be involved, to weigh in, to help craft and shape that strategy. And then in the rollout of that strategy, the multiple mediums uh, and ways of interacting with that strategy. So we created a short video, we held an all hands, we did just a Q&A session, we've done smaller group meetings, we empowered leaders with training to take the strategy down into their team meetings and translate it into what precisely it meant for that specific team and to do Q&A around that team. And then we bubbled up the questions back, back up and looked for themes in those questions and developed Q&A documents that surfaced the most frequently asked questions and have just given people multiple opportunities to engage in that with, with that content in multiple ways. We published a memo that people could read and digest. There was a you know supplemental data that if they wanted to dig in, they could go and see where some of these insights were drawn fun from. But I think just giving people multiple ways of engaging and especially in smaller forums where they can actually at, feel safe to ask the questions, to push, to challenge, and to make it better, I think was the key to, to the most recent, our, our most recent strategy rollout. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. How have you evolved the most as a leader over these 14 years? I mean, of course, you came in a very young employee, and employee number 10, and now the CMO for three and a half years of a fairly large organization. So what is it beyond maturity, right? We all mature, we learn, but how do you think you're different from which, from the leader you were 14 years ago? I think that having the opportunity have worked in, to have worked in marketing and product and as a GM of a business unit has given me business perspective that I didn't have 14 years ago, mm-hmm. certainly, and empathy and understanding for other parts of the business and how they work and how marketing can engage with them more effectively. And then I think also just as a leader, you make so many mistakes along the way that you learn and grow from. And you know whether it's who you hire or how you let them go, if it doesn't work out, how you how to set goals that people believe are achievable and attainable yet are stretch them in new ways. All of these things are so so much of it is learning by doing. I I went to to MIT Sloan and, and got an MBA and 
it gave me some great foundation for leadership. But ultimately, what you learn in the trenches, dealing with people, right? The messiness of people and all the different ways people like to be motivated, like to receive feedback. Just the experience of of having worked with so many people over this period of time has, has, I think, given me a lot of empathy, but also structure in how to address the various people (laughs) issues and situations that arise. Now, let's talk about how you think about your time and your focus as CMO, right? You have three and a half years in the job. You have precious time, valuable time. You have a lot of demands on your time. So take us a little bit into your life. How do you spend your time? How do you make choices for yourself about where you focus? Well, my first team is the executive team. And that I think um, is shared amongst the whole executive team where we're each other's first team. And so that is my P0, my number one in terms of where I spend my time in the business is making sure that I'm connected and working very closely with my peers on the executive team. But I think time for yourself is also incredibly important. So I would, I kind of put those two things hand in hand in terms of how I prioritize. I also want to make sure I start every week with some quiet time to think, to think about what are the most important priorities for the week? What are the urgent things that I need to attend to, but also what are the important things that I need to get to? And usually those important things are related to strategy and people and the stuff that's not, you don't have to necessarily deal with today, but are incredibly important to a high performing team. But so I think those two things are, are top for me. And then spending individual time with my leadership is next in line. So I do hour-long one-on-ones with my direct reports every week just to make sure that they have all the context. As I said before, as a leader, I believe my role is to make sure that my team has all of the context that I have so that they can be empowered to make the best decisions and run towards the goals as fast as they can. And so that time every week is really important. I really protect it with, um, and make sure that it doesn't get scheduled over because I want to make sure that whatever we're talking about in our ESAF meeting, I can relate to them in relatively quick order so that they understand the context for what's going on in the broader business and they can direct their teams and make decisions quickly. And I think removing myself out of any bottleneck position is, is really key to the velocity of the team. And so the way to do that is just to make sure that these leaders have, have all the context and would make you know the same or better decisions than I would. So that's essentially how, how I prioritize my time. I also do some skip level check-ins and one-on-ones with, with other members of the team regularly. And I, I um, slot those in. And then I think, especially now with new, the way, how fast new technology, especially in AI is evolving, I'm carving out time just to do more education for myself, to make sure that I'm staying on top of trends, looking at new companies that are coming out in the MarTech space, looking at my peers and and carving out time to actually connect with them, lead, marketing leaders at other organizations to find out how they're a- attacking and addressing some of these, these changes and making sure that we're, we're as ahead of the curve as we possibly can be as an organization. Now, you said in there, you make time for yourself. That was one of the first things you said, and you take time early in the week to think and to plan your week. Maybe an obvious question, but I still want to ask it. Why is that important for you? And how do you do it? I try to do the same, but sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there's other things that impede on it. Sometimes I'm not in the mood for it. So how do you do it? And why is it important? It is hard. It's important because without doing that, it is so easy. I mean, 
especially in we're a very like slack dominated mm-hmm. culture and in this world where you are just getting pinged with questions and requests constantly it's very easy to just get sucked into the into the seemingly urgent questions and requests that are coming your way. I mean, if, if I didn't take that time, I would probably spend the first four hours of my day just responding to Slack messages. And so it's, I think, more important now than ever because there are so many distractions and so many seemingly urgent things coming at you at the start of a week to really take the time and, and design how you want to spend your time this week. What are the most important things you want to get done and creating that hit list? And then I keep that that list, the mo- most important to-do list in front of me all week and make sure that I get through it and make sure that I make the time to, to spend where necessary in order to get through that list. So that's why it's important. I think just the amount of distractions and the, the directions that you can get pulled in so quickly and so easily these days, they demand you, you sit down and, and make that, that priority list at the beginning of the week. And then in terms of how we do it, I, I just guard that time really, really militantly. <laughs> I don't let anybody schedule over that pretty much ever, um, unless there is something absolutely so urgent that, you know, it can't wait. Now, I said in the beginning, your, your story is a bit unusual. You did go through going public with this company about five years ago. How has that changed your work, changed your role, if at all? The experience of going public, I think, had a lot of value in two main ways and has has therefore sort of transformed how, how we work. The first is it really forced us very much like in those early days when we were putting together our pitch deck mm-hmm. to go raise money. It forced us to articulate very clearly, not only our why, our reason for existence, but our plan and how we were going to grow and how we were going to build a sustainable, profitable, strong, fast growth business. And make sure that we were all aligned in that. And so that that kind of forcing function, function of articulating that as clearly as possible was super valuable, valuable because it aligned everyone on the path forward. I think second, it also gave us more, it, it forced more a bit more rigor and accountability and ownership. And I think that that has served us really well in everything that we do throughout the entire organization, but especially in marketing. When we, we set our our vision and our goals for the company and then and the strategy for the company. And then we back into, okay, how is marketing going to show up to play a critical role in manifesting that strategy? And then what are we going to hold ourselves accountable to? How will we know that we're doing the job we said we were going to do and in what time frame? And we've just gotten a lot more, I think it's forced a lot more rigor and accountability and therefore ownership, which is which are all great things for for the organization. Let's step back and talk a bit more about your career. You mentioned it a couple of times uh, leading up to this. You worked at Forrester for four years. You went back for your MBA. At Forrester, you were exposed to a lot of companies, right? You were in e-commerce, a multi-channel retail. What about that four years, which was so diverse in terms of the people, the leadership you've been exposed to, the companies, the strategies? What about that has shaped you as the leader you are today? At its heart, Forrester is a content business, right? Um, writing, uh, you know, as an analyst, I was writing research reports and I saw the value in going out and aggregating multiple viewpoints in order to forecast trends, in order to bring be- best practices to, to light. And that was like the early marketing playbook at Eventbrite. And to even to this day, content continues to be a core component of how we tell our story, how we reach new customers, how we engage existing customers. And I think that was all based on that foundation at Forrester, where I really saw the value of 
creating thought leadership content, but also the process with which to go through to develop it effectively. So I think that that first and foremost. And then I think secondly, at a little bit more of an abstract level, I was working with a large breadth of, of organizations in terms of their tech aptitude and how quickly they were willing to embrace new technologies. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear to me, and especially in those early days of e-commerce, retailers that were embracing e-commerce, retailers that were embracing the fact that technology was changing their customers' behavior and therefore their customers' expectations of them were the companies that were going to be ahead of the curve. And that is really something that's deeply ingrained in my psyche and my leadership philosophy and business philosophy. I don't want to get left behind by new technologies. I want to make sure that we are watching very closely and carefully how our customers are adopting these new technologies, what these new technologies might empower us to build in order to solve problems in new ways. And you know, right now, especially on the consumer discovery side, I think the way people discover things to do and fill their time and their calendars is going to shift pretty massively over the next couple of years with, a, with the introduction of more AI tools. And I want to be at the forefront of that. Yeah, it's fundamental to your business, right? Yeah, absolutely. How are you keeping yourself uh, sharp with AI and what's happening? I'm, I'm sure you're using it yourself, as we all yes. are. But how are you? You said you're looking at companies, you're reading a lot. What Any advice you have for others who are trying to understand its implication on their business and model? I mean, this with any new technology, it really comes to life when you use it. And there's like no replacement from actually just getting demos. Like a lot of these, uh, the new technology startups are very eager to build customer base and get customers are very willing to give you a demo. And a lot of them are recording short videos. You can actually see the technology in action and getting your hands on it and playing with it. There's, there's really no replacement for that. And that again is like probably my early forester analyst training. We evaluated technology and the way we did that was like in a lab with our, you know, with the gloves off, actually getting in there and playing with the technology and, and getting it to solve real problems. So think about what are the what are some of your stickiest problems, whether it's scaling content. I mean, one of our our interesting problems is like photos and videos of events do really well to give people an idea of the vibe, but you can't get a photo and a video of an event before it happens until now. So what, how might AI unlock some of these new opportunities and solve these new challenges in different ways? And that, that's super exciting and, and really fun to play with. I still get asked by a lot of young people if they should go back for their MBA. And you went back for your MBA at Sloan. And from what I see, you made the most of it. I mean, you were highly engaged, really active, lots and lots of leadership roles. Uh, you became, you got an award for be, for peer recognition. And so you seem to have a fabulous experience. So tell us how that helped you transition from being an analyst to what you're doing today. What's your, how important was Sloan in your life and what was it about that experience? I think for me personally, going back to school after having a couple of years of work made me appreciate school more and I think was really the motivation to dive into all of those opportunities. I also realized that a lot of the content in the classroom you can find in other places, in textbooks online, in, on, on YouTube. And the value of the experience was really going to be in the actual experiences that I 
either manufactured for myself or exposed myself to. And so I tried to just make the most of all of those opportunities. So there was a live study program in Africa that I participated in that was focused on global health, for example. Now, I had no healthcare background. I didn't really have plans on going into healthcare, but I was very curious about this subject and wanted that experience. So a team of four of four of my classmates and I went and we lived in Kenya for a month and we worked with a pediatric hospital there. And that experience was just so rewarding, fulfilling, eye-opening. And I think that's really what business school is about is exposing yourself to the, those experiences, giving yourself exposure to those experiences and putting yourself in situations that you probably will never find yourself in again. That's where the most fun, the most learning, the most growth comes from. And it's probably, you know, the spectrum of those experiences that have helped to feed my curiosity, helped to give me empathy for, for different people and organizations and challenges and, and then a, a network of, of lifelong friends that, that I'll, you know, that I'll be able to lean on for, for many years. And, you know, it's really inspiring to see what a lot of my classmates have gone on to do and to, to cheer them on. You had an internship while at Sloan at Apple, I believe, for the summer. I mean, one of the biggest companies in the world. Did that experience help you decide you wanted to be in a smaller company versus a large one? I, I don't think it, it helped me decide like the size of company necessarily. That was an amazing experience. It's an incredible organization. I learned so much there. Like I still remember, like if you if you walk at least in those days, I'm not sure if it still exists. You walk into the Marcom department, and on the wall it says "Simplify, Simplify, Simplify," and then two of the simplifies are crossed out. Right there, there are just some fundamental philosophies, marketing philosophies that. I carry with me today. It was an incredible learning experience. And it's a brand that I love and really cherished my time being on the inside and kind of seeing how how the magic is made there. But it was during that time that, you know, I lived in the Bay Area for the first time and I got to meet a lot of entrepreneurs that were experimenting with new technologies at that time. Mobile, like the iPhone had just come out. Like the the possibilities seemed endless and limitless. It was sort of the early days of local and social and mobile. And there were so many ideas and so much innovation happening so quickly. I really caught that bug. And I wanted to move at that pace. I saw how how quickly people were coming up with ideas, launching them into market, learning from their customers, evolving those ideas. And that speed looked really fun. And that was the thing that drew me to want to join a startup um, coming out of that experience. Let's flip into the creative brief. My first question, you probably know it's coming, is what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? I think it was Reebok. So I'm a child of the 80s and like Reebok high tops was in my vocabulary at a very young age. Like the freestyle, I think they're called freestyles, the the double Velcro high tops. I fell in love with those sneakers. I had them in different colors. I always I was like looking forward to my feet growing so I could get a new a new pair. That was a brand that that and I think and Converse in those early days, I was very aware of, of, of footwear for some reason, are, are some of the earliest brands that I remember. You've been an expert in residence for the past seven years at Rippleworks. So that's a, that's a big commitment, seven years, and you seem to be very involved. Tell us why you're making that choice and why you're so committed to that organization. Well, I really want to 
to give back, to use my expertise and experience to help other companies grow. And RippleWorks particularly gives me the opportunity to help startups in emerging markets and specifically nonprofit organizations that maybe can't afford or don't have access to you know, different levels of talent. And so to be able to spend time going deep with them on a project has been really fulfilling and rewarding. And, you know, I've been so lucky to have some amazing mentors in my career and people that have and advisors and people that have dedicated time to helping me learn and grow and help our marketing organization um, learn and grow that, uh, you know, I really wanted to, to pay that forward and, and also just have the opportunity to see what interest other interesting mission-driven organizations around the world are working on and how they're applying technology to solving some of the the world's most challenging problems. What's the biggest misconception about yourself that others have? I think if people don't know that I have held roles in pro- in the product organization that I've been the GM of a business unit, you might think that oh, you know, she's she's she spent her whole career in marketing and she's a marketer. But it's actually the experience that I had leading product as a GM of a business unit that I think actually makes me a better marketer, helps me to see opportunities at the intersection of product and marketing specifically. So much of growth, especially in tech, comes from the product experience and uh, having an understanding of how marketing and product should work together to develop the, the highest performing experiences has been a really fun and interesting op- growth opportunity for me and I think makes me a, a stronger makes me a stronger marketer at the end of the day. You work since you joined the company with a husband and wife team, right? They're two of the three founders. So it's pretty that's an amazing story in and of itself. What did you learn about great relationships from working for a husband and wife team for 14 years? Yes, they're they're an incredible team and I think the biggest lesson there is divide and conquer don't work on the same thing with your with your partner. And Kevin and Julia really stuck to that and it worked super well. And I think the only the only tension there ever was was by when by accident they they started working on the same thing. But I think for the most part they did an incredible job defining their areas of responsibility, supporting each other, giving each other advice, but letting each other own and run with those different areas of the business. I love it, divide and conquer. It's a good principle. Not just in business, but... Exactly. (laughs) In life. Who has been the most meaningful mentor, business mentor in your career? I think Allison Johnson, who was the CMO at Apple for many years Mm -hmm. and then ran her own agency for a number of years. I started working with her actually when I moved out of marketing and into product. The challenge that I was given was to figure out the consumer side of our marketplace, right? Uh, Up until that point in time, we were very focused on being a, like a B2B to C organization. So we built platform and technology and tools for event creators and their customers were attendees. We always believed there was a huge opportunity for us to become a true marketplace because of the breadth and the depth of events on our platform. We identified an opportunity to be able to open that up and showcase that and give people the opportunity to explore and discover all the amazing events that were happening in their community. But it was never anyone's number one priority. And so it was always that like proverbial can that got kicked down the road. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that next year. And, that, you know, we put it on the plan for the year and then it would in- inevitably get knocked off because of something more urgent coming up. 
And it was in 2015 that we said, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to do this now. And, and we need to have a focused exec attack this problem. And so I worked with Allison actually very a lot in those early days to help help me define and understand the problem we were trying to solve. And, you know, at that point, we had never really done any consumer marketing. So she gave me a, a very valuable crash course in, in consumer marketing and actually let us work out of some of her office space. She had an extra kind of wing of her office. And I took a small team out of Eventbrite because there was such gravitational pull towards our old business model that I felt like we just needed some separate space to actually operate and act like a true startup. And so she, she gave us some space. And so she'd, she'd come in every day or every other day and say, you know, what are you working on? How's it going? And we would share the research we were doing, what we had learned from customers that we were interviewing, a prototype that we had just built. And, and she gave us invaluable advice in terms of how to start thinking about the evolution that we would eventually need to take on, which was to, to transform into being a, a true consumer brand. And you know, many of those lessons we're now enacting on as we're leaning much more heavily into that, uh, into that objective now. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? I think in many ways, my father, he was a graphic designer and he's no longer with us, but he grew up in Zimbabwe and lived in London, then lived in London for a long time. And when he came to the US, worked for a magazine, but very quickly realized like he wanted to start his own business and he could do that here. So he started his own graphic design studio. And I just remember going in as a kid to, to his office and there was like, like a DIY construction dream. Like there was paper and scissors and paper cutters and, you know, stuff all over the walls. It was such a fun environment. And it was really amazing to see how that environment transformed over my childhood with the advent of the computer. And so much of the graphic design world moving with technology into computer first. And so that was, you know, watching my dad navigate that and also be excited by it, not daunted by how technology yeah. was transforming his profession, but actually excited to see what these new tools could enable and how it would transform the way he could work was really inspiring to me. And I think now, you know, reflecting back on that, a lot of my approach and optimism about technology comes from him. Wow. Do you still have any of his work, any of his design in your office or your home? I do. I do. Yes. He designed my birth announcement, which I have framed in my office. Oh, oh, I love that. We have to end this, but I have to say, what a show. And if you ever decide you want to leave Eventbrite, you would be a marvelous executive coach. Oh, well, thank you. You know, this has been a terrific episode and full of learning and wisdom and inspiration and pragmatic advice. So thank you for this gift. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed my time here with you. And I'm an avid li listener of the podcast myself. It's been a real honor to be here. That was my conversation with Tamara. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is find consumers that love you and reflect that love in your marketing. Pretty simple idea. When Tamara first went to Eventbrite, she found customers who love the app and she simply understood it and magnified it in their marketing, and look what happened. Second takeaway, Tamara sees a CMO role as primarily clarity on strategy inside and outside the company, and then empowering your leaders to activate that with their teams. Pretty simple brief for the job, but if you get that right, everything else seems to fall in place. Third takeaway, if you love it, stay. 
Tamara has been at this company 14 years. That's unusual. CMO for three and a half years. It was love at first sight, and she's never lost the love, and she's never been tempted to leave. So if you love where you are, cherish it, stay there, and thrive. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.